Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're staying close to home with a show about putting down roots and keeping a roof over your head. But before we get to today's stories, D.C. recently lost a figure who was born in the Deep South, but who eventually put down his roots in the nation's capital, former mayor and council member Marion Barry. Washingtonians paid homage to him at the Wilson Building on Thursday. You know, I come to pay my respects to him because he was a very good mayor and a very good council member for the city. As a woman or as just, you know, just as a D.C. resident, he made you feel good. And he'll be with Ronald Reagan one minute, then the next minute he'll be walking down the street saying hello to you. So he was that kind of man. He was a real man. I think he marked the, the end of an era uh, and, and that now, the, ever, ever since he left the office of the mayor, the trajectory of the city has been to push out the poor, you know, and, and he's done what he could to, to uh, inhibit that process. We will probably never see the likes of Marion Barry in that same package. We may see aspects in other politicians that come through the District of Columbia, but we won't get that, that uh, commitment and uh, resilience in a person to lead the city in the ways that he's led the city. Those were Washingtonians talking about the man known as the mayor for life, Marion Barry. Over the course of the next hour, we'll be bringing you stories from around the city he once led and from the suburbs, too. Our first story today is about what it takes to buy a home here in the nation's capital. Washington, D.C. has one of the highest costs of living in the nation, but nearly one in five residents lives at or below the poverty line. And many low-income residents are having trouble buying affordable housing, not necessarily because they can't find it, but because of what they must do in order to get it. Bua Benitier is an affordable housing developer based in D.C. He's showing me around Justice Park Apartments, an affordable housing development he opened in Columbia Heights this fall. We begin in the lobby. We can't afford the sexy lobbies that most market units have, but I think we've done a very good job giving you that flair. Benitier's company, Dante's Partners, has also done a very good job getting tenants. For this property that you and I are sitting in right now, we have a 1,000 people waitless. This building leased up in two weeks. The key word here is leased. Justice Park is a rental building. But at one of Benitier's for sale properties in the Eckington neighborhood? The affordable units were selling for $171,000, and the market rate units were selling for $230,000. All the market rate units sold in two months. But it's taken me 11 months to dispose of 11 affordable dwelling units. Benitier blames the holdup on the hoops prospective buyers must jump through. First, you have to prove your income is low enough to be eligible for affordable housing. Being income eligible in D.C. means making below 80 percent of the area median income. The AMI is $107,000 for a family of four, so that means you're making less than $87,000. But as Sheila Crowley of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition points out, that isn't necessarily high enough to qualify for a mortgage. Part of it is this square peg into a round hole thing that we try to do in housing. And that's a conundrum. A conundrum compounded by more requirements. Prospective buyers of affordable housing must attend home buying training. And if they want to enter the Home Purchase Assistance Program and get a zero-interest five-year deferred loan, they have to navigate the labyrinth of city government. People can get frustrated with all the hoops you have to jump through. Marilyn Phillips just bought her very first condo, a brand-new two-bedroom unit in the Buxton in historic Anacostia. All of the information they want to gather from you, it can make you feel like, 
Why do you need all this information? But Phillips was able to provide what they needed with help from MANA, the affordable housing organization that developed the Buxton and walked Phillips through the buying process. I couldn't be happier. I am pleased with just being able to say I'm a homeowner. She's also pleased to start saving money. Phillips has been fighting breast cancer for years, which has made paying rent even more difficult. I pay most of my Social Security disability check to my landlord now. I pay $900 a month. My mortgage at this new place is only $224 a month. But again, she had to go through a lot to get there. Sarah Scruggs works for MANA and says the bureaucracy surrounding affordable homeownership is actually well-intentioned, especially after the housing boom and bust. The D.C. government and the federal government want to make sure that the subsidies that they're providing are going to people that actually need them. But what happens is many low-income individuals decide to just keep renting or splurge on a market rate unit. Because they don't have to deal with the paperwork required to buy an affordable dwelling unit and they don't have to deal with the restrictions. Like the one in D.C. that limits how much money you can make if you decide to sell your house before a certain amount of time has elapsed. That ends up being a very cumbersome process because you're tied to a bureaucracy for a really long period of time. And then on top of that restriction, you also don't have access to the equity in your home for that amount of time. D.C. Department of Housing and Community Development Director Michael Kelly says he understands how unwieldy the process can be. Unfortunately, with all government programs, there are bureaucracies and and provisions that go with that. We're doing everything we can to streamline that effort. Mayor Vincent Gray has vowed to build 10,000 affordable units by the year 2020. He hopes the next administration will continue toward that goal. But under the current system, it could be a while before every unit has an owner to call it home sweet home. Our next story is about a young D.C. native whose home growing up was anything but safe. Omar Nath's childhood was one of turmoil. But as Lauren Ober tells us, Omar has turned things around and finally knows what it is to say there's no place like home. Things were pretty good in Omar Nath's early years. There was always enough food in the pantry and clean clothes in the drawers. He and his three siblings went to school and stayed out of trouble. When I was in elementary, it was it was a very good like situation. Like I was getting real good grades. My mom was okay. We was getting taken care of, and everything was good. Sure, his Southwest DC neighborhood was tough, and the public housing complex where he lived wasn't the best. But his family seemed strong. They could weather the violence and the drugs that were just outside their door. Then, in Omar's early teen years, things began to fall apart. And that's when I had to come in and play the part of trying to put order into my siblings because my mom couldn't do it. So felt like I had to fit those shoes to be like, all right, since I'm the oldest, well, I got to do everything. Omar's mother had undiagnosed schizophrenia, and her downward spiral was quick. She'd just be in the house. Like, she won't go nowhere. There was times when I had to go to the grocery store by myself to, you know, bring groceries back to the apartment or go wash my own clothes at, at that age, like... 13, 14, washing my own clothes and bringing them back to the house. So she did. She she relied on me a lot. Though Omar had become the de facto man of the house, he wasn't great at self-discipline. We skipped school a lot. And we just, like, run, run the streets and stuff with other people that we was with at the time and doing stuff we wasn't supposed to be doing. Mostly that meant vandalism, trespassing, and some theft here and there. Omar also tried his hand at selling drugs. 
In his neighborhood, that's how you got respect. Better yet, if you served time doing it. Omar's story isn't new. Some variation of it has been told for decades. Young black man lacks parental guidance and lands on the streets. But Omar's trying to flip the narrative. Where I come from don't mean that's me. Meaning that it's a lot of people that's in my situations, that's ambitious and that's intelligent and want to succeed in life, but feel like they can't because they don't feel like there's no way out. That's not me. Like That's not the, the type of person I am. I know I should be in college somewhere. Like, that's what I am. Like, that fits me. One day in 2008, Omar and his brother returned from a weekend stay at their grandparents' house in Maryland to find that a fire had ripped through their apartment building. Omar's stuff was gone, and they had to find a new place to live. The fire turned out to be sort of a blessing in disguise. The family moved to Lincoln Heights in Northeast. There, an aunt of Omar's saw the kids weren't being taken care of and called the D.C. Child and Family Services Agency. The police came, and they went into my house, and they came back out. They had my siblings, and I ran for a little while. Then then I just said, forget it, I might as well just go to it. Omar and his siblings were placed in foster care through NCCF, the National Center for Children and Families. They sent him and his younger brother to their grandparents in Fort Washington, Maryland. And Omar seemed to thrive there. It was on us, you know, school, school. We, we went to school every day. Even the days came when you ain't have to come to school. You know, when like the end of the year, they still made us go to school. So <laughs> so they made sure we was in school. They didn't play that. So I'm glad they did do that. Omar spent six years in foster care with his grandparents. And in March of this year, he aged out of the system. Through NCCF's Future Bound Transitional Housing Program, Omar moved into his own apartment in Rockville. Recently, he took me on a tour of his place. This is the, my rooming room. This is the bathroom. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty clean. I'm impressed. I know. I'm impressed myself. Usually, <laughs> this is my room, closet, camera. I do uh, photography and, uh, and I like shooting cameras or like the video he's doing with, with those. And so what what else do we have in here? Like a uh, TV, big Xbox 360, and I have a king-size bed and a lot of books I like to read. What are you reading right now? I'm reading a lot of religious books. I'm trying to look into Hindu, looking into Arabic books and things of that sort. After a bumpy start where home meant turmoil and stress, Omar is making his own version of home. Home stands for a place of comfort. A place you can always come to, a place that you can call yours, a place that you're safe. When you need to get away from everything, you need to get away from people, you can always come home and cut off the world if you wanted to. Like, that's what home is to me. Like, that's your home. For Omar, home is also a place to do homework for his college classes. He's working toward his associate's degree and hopes to enroll in the University of Maryland next year. I'm Lauren Ober. the break. It's become this really effective free clinic, bilingual, that started with just a bunch of hippies and some Central American activists with the help of the city of Washington. The legacy of the D.C. Center. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. 
WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection, where this week our theme is Close to Home. We'll begin this part of the show with a little-known piece of local history and a home that holds deep familial significance for WAMU's Ali Schweitzer. It's tranquil here at my father's house in southern Tennessee. He lives on a sprawling plot of land known as The Farm, one of the country's largest and best-known hippie communes. My uncle, Peter Schweitzer, helped settle the farm in 1971. When we came to the farm, the idea was to establish a community based on the principles of nonviolence. In the 70s, people on the farm followed the ideas of a spiritual leader named Stephen Gaskin. Residents developed a collective economy and cultivated soybeans. They lived in large groups and had lots of children. They mostly tuned out the rest of the world. But after a few years, the commune began to look outward. It wanted to start an organization that would help people off the farm live better lives. Even though we were living on a dollar a day a person, comparatively to a lot of the majority of the people in the world, we were fat and sassy. So we said, yeah, okay, let's do it. What what can we do? Well, we had to come up with a name. Let's call it Plenty, because we have so much. Plenty's first big project was in Guatemala, helping Mayans recover from a massive earthquake in 1976. Then Plenty set its sights on another far-off place, Washington, D.C. We thought, you know what, Washington, D.C. would be a good place for an office for Plenty. We'll be more in the action. While Plenty hatched its plan, the farm's population was exploding. Poverty and overcrowding had begun to take hold. Farm resident Elaine Langley. We just decided we wanted to go to D.C. I mean, the farm, it was going through a lot of hard times by then. I think we we were kind of wanting to go to a satellite place because we were living in a big household. It was just kind of crazy on the farm. So Elaine's family moved to D.C., followed by my uncle's family and then my father and his family two years later in 1980. By then, 30 or more farmies had taken over a row house in Columbia Heights near the intersection of 16th Street and Park Road. They called it the D.C. Center. My mother, Cynthia Nystrom, had been living on the farm for several years. In 1981, she came to D.C. with her two boys. I felt like I was ready for another step in my life and that maybe this was it for me. One thing she was especially excited about, basic amenities rare on the farm. The flush toilets and good food, lots of it, warmth, and you didn't have to stoke the wood stove in the middle of the night. You know, you could really keep clean all the time. Peter operated plenty out of the house. The group worked on Native American issues. It arranged a large anti-nuke rally on the National Mall. Then it noticed that refugees had begun streaming into D.C., fleeing violence in Central America. Plenty started talking with the Central American Refugee Center about how to help. We started scheming together about getting a free clinic going for these refugees. And we called it Clinica del Pueblo. At first, La Clinica operated just one night a week, 
with the help of D.C. Center volunteers, local nonprofits, medical students, and the administration of then-Mayor Marion Barry. It became the most important project Plenty worked on in D.C. But to support Plenty, people at the D.C. Center needed to get to work. Everybody was crew. There were no passengers. That's John Coate, one of several D.C. Center men who supported the collective by working on a hippie construction crew. Some female residents worked for Plenty, but others, like my mother, did what could be considered woman's work. I quickly was co-opted for, instead of working in the Plenty office, for cooking and cleaning and taking care of kids. That was a real letdown, a personal letdown. Raising kids at the center could be challenging. For one, they outnumbered adults in the house, and they looked different from other kids. Both boys and girls were practically required to have long hair, keeping with farm tradition. But long locks weren't exactly typical for boys in the 1980s. Elaine's son, Russell Langley, recalls being teased. I remember kids making fun of me because I had long hair. And I think that was pretty relevant to a lot of kids that grew up in the D.C. center, wanting to kind of cut your hair and fit in a little bit at a certain age and it not being socially accepted within the community. So we had to keep our hair long. Then there was the issue of adapting to an urban environment. My father, Phil Schweitzer. Because in Tennessee, they could run freely through the woods, which they did. And we didn't worry about them. In D.C., there was more of a concern about that. In May 1983, the D.C. Center received a shocking reminder that in the city, the threat of crime was real. She had gone out, she had taken a shower and had her flowing dress. I remember the kids running back and, you know, us running and running out there and she was on, you know, on the sidewalk bleeding. My mother had been stabbed within blocks of the house. I don't remember a whole lot. I just remember trying to get away and I had my flip-flops on, which I was tripping over. A man had run out of an apartment building on Park Road and sunk a knife into my mother's stomach while she was walking to a friend's house. He was quickly arrested and he confessed. Police said he suffered from mental illness. I heard from the detectives that he thought I was the devil. At Washington Hospital Center, my mother gradually recovered. She wouldn't live in D.C. much longer, but it wasn't just the violent attack that made her leave. Major changes were sweeping through the farm, and they affected everyone at the D.C. Center. The workforce and the donations and everything seemed never able to keep up with what it took just to keep the whole thing in a basic state of rudimentary well-being. The farm couldn't maintain itself. In 1983, it made the difficult but necessary decision of abandoning its collective economy. That transition was called the changeover, and it spelled the end of the D.C. Center. Without the mothership, we no longer had the core of who we were. This is my father again, Phil Schweitzer. Each of us, in our own way, needed to figure out what we were going to do next. For my parents, who had started dating at the house, that meant pairing off and settling down in Silver Spring, Maryland. They got married, and in 1985, they had me. Today, the D.C. Center's greatest legacy is La Clinica del Pueblo. When my uncle and his family left D.C. in 1984... We just told the community, the clinic is yours. See what you can do with it. Now the clinic serves more than 8,000 people with a budget of more than $7 million a year. Back on the farm, which still exists today and is even growing, my Uncle Peter reflects on what a bunch of hippies helped build in D.C. And it's become this really effective free clinic, bilingual, that started with this little seed with just a bunch of hippies and some Central American activists with the help of the city of Washington. And what about Plenty's larger vision? And we try not to feel guilty about not doing a better job of bringing world peace 
by now. Yeah, you haven't taken care of that yet? No, it, it somehow just kind of slipped through our fingers. That goal is still a work in progress. I'm Allie Schweitzer. Keep your head up high. Rest your mind at ease. Don't let nothing get you down. Cause everything's head now to what some would call another refuge for hippie dreamers and political progressives. Tacoma Park, Maryland has 17,000 people and for decades has retained much of its radical charm. But as Tacoma Park native Avi Wolfman Arendt tells us, new development has longtime residents wondering about their future. From kindergarten through high school, I lived in Tacoma Park, Maryland, tie-dye capital of the world, as I called it in my college entrance essay. The town borders northwest D.C., and its houses are a patchwork of Victorians, 1920s bungalows, and apartment buildings. You won't find a lot of manicured lawns or McMansions in Tacoma Park, but you will find people who despise those things, people like Mike Tabor. I came here to go to college in University of Maryland in 1963, and I, I stayed here. And it was probably fated that I live in Tacoma Park because this community is filled with a lot of people like me. Mike is like the Tacoma Park version of a renaissance man. He's been a social worker, an activist, and for the past four decades, an organic farmer. Each week, he ferries vegetables to street markets and food co-ops in the D.C. area. And that means frequent stops at the Tacoma Park Silver Spring Food Co-op, a local institution since the early 80s. For me, it's very casual. I like doing it. They like buying from me. Today's load is pretty light. Some eggplants, a few peppers. He asked me to uh, bring some extras for the weekend, so... As he unloads, Mike is standing on the most buzzed-about property in Tacoma Park. The city owns the parcel next to the co-op, has since 1995. Today, it's a parking lot in a lagging commercial corridor called Tacoma Junction. But in January, the city issued a request for proposals to develop the lot. City manager Brian Kenner helped put the RFP together. You know, that was one of the things that I put on my to-do list when I came here, which was... Let's at least issue the solicitation. Let's go through a public process to see what the interest is, to see what people like and don't like, and then let's see if there's something there that we can work with. Seven developers responded with bids. In early September, the city announced four finalists. A few weeks later, the finalists presented their proposals to an overflow crowd at City Hall. And a week after that, many of those same folks returned to City Hall for a public comment period. They were not, on the whole, a cheerful bunch. I believe that all four of these proposals and the RFP are fundamentally flawed. In looking at the developer proposals, I just had a very strong sense that they were clueless as to who is Tacoma Park. The proposals we all saw had a lot of major flaws. Development of the green space, Bethesda-like four and one-half-story-plus buildings. The developments we saw here last Tuesday are typical of what's in Bethesda, not in Tacoma Park. And I, I urge you... That last voice you might have recognized, that was Mike Tabers. Now, 
The clamor at this meeting suggested some insidious intrusion, a strip mall or an office park. But in fact, the proposals were modest, three or four stories at the most, mixed use, a few glassy storefronts. So why the commotion? In part because it's not just this one development. It's actually the latest in a tide of buzzy, trendy newness. There is a hip new restaurant in downtown Tacoma Park, a gelato shop across the street, a new luxury apartment building just over the D.C. line, and another slated to open soon with another hip restaurant on the ground floor. There's also talk of developing a seven-acre plot abutting the nearby metro station in Tacoma, D.C., and housing prices? Well, the census says they've nearly doubled since 2000, even after adjusting for inflation. There's no question, Brian Kenner says, Tacoma Park is a hot commodity these days. Tacoma Park just has a great brand, right? It's got funky, it's got granola, it's got nuclear-free, it's got, you know, innovative, it's got creative, it's got artistic, it's got festivals, it's got parades, you know, so, like, there's a... There's a certain factor that I think is happening. That factor convinced the city to explore developing Tacoma Junction. If completed, it would be the first major construction project in the actual city of Tacoma Park since this new tide of development started about a decade ago. In other words, all that D.C. development may finally breach the Maryland line. When Tacoma Park held a recent Meet the Finalists event at City Hall, I asked some of the developers, why does the city appeal to you? A lot of them cited Tacoma Park's architectural and ethnic diversity, its walkability, its eco-consciousness, and its proximity to transit. As architect John Torty explained, Tacoma Park feels authentic, communal, more like a hip urban neighborhood than your average suburb. It's the antithesis of the suburbs. The suburbs have no public realm. None. If you are a pedestrian, you have to walk in the street. So let me see if I get this then. Tacoma Park is like an anti-suburb suburb, which makes it a very attractive suburb right now. Not a suburb. Never was a suburb. Bethesda does not have the sovereignty Tacoma Park has. There's that word again, Bethesda. It's the Tony suburb that has become to Tacoma Parkers a kind of shorthand for showy wealth, yuppie vibes, and corporate saturation. It's the foil, the boogeyman. Tacoma Park's cachet to developers is that it doesn't feel like Bethesda, but here's the irony. When I talk to folks who worry about development at Tacoma Junction, they often say the current proposals look too much like Bethesda. Now, you might think this is all kind of silly, and it may be. After all, we're talking about a comfortable, liberal enclave, Tacoma Park, that may be turning into a slightly different type of comfortable, liberal enclave. But on a more atomic level, this whole co-op controversy is about a town, my town, dealing with a new flood of outside interests and trying to reconcile the idea of itself as a funky brand. Tacoma Parkers like to believe they're autonomous, self-determined, engaged. That's what attracted Mike Tabor when he came here. I mean, this is a community that cares. It cares about its opposition to war, to the use of nuclear power. This is a community that still is a community that people want to live in because they feel they have some control. Mike told me that when he goes to suburbs like Bethesda and sees big SUVs parked in front of big houses, he feels like the place lacks community. Well, I realize they have no control, uh, don't know their neighbors, um, don't... um, Control of what? Control of their lives. You know, here I feel we've got some control of our lives... To this point, Tacoma Park hasn't really controlled the development in its midst. A lot of it's been spillover from D.C. But now it's getting control back. 
The property next to the co-op is literally owned by the city, owned by the citizens. And if there's one thing I know about my hometown, it's that when people here have some authority, they exercise it. I'm Abby Wolfman-Arend. A few weeks ago, we did a show about heroin abuse in our region, and our reporter Hans Anderson visited Hope Wellness and Recovery Center in Baltimore. That's hope as in helping other people through empowerment. Hope provides washing machines, showers, and social services for homeless Baltimoreans experiencing mental illness or addiction. Thomas Hicks is Hope's executive director. Having had his own experiences with homelessness, he's now working to provide some of the comforts of home to people who might otherwise go without I had got locked up in 1997, and I literally begged for treatment. And I went to the pre-trial release people, and when they was doing my assessment, and they said, well, Mr. Hicks, how long have you been using drugs? That's since, since 1968. And this is 1997. The lady stopped and said, there's nothing we could do for you. And you, and you really got to imagine, here I'm begging for help. And they said there's nothing that they say you're subject to be a chronic drug abuser for the rest of your life. But the last thing that lady said was, you probably already know what you need to do more than we do. And I didn't really internalize that because I was I was in a funk. I went out there, went over to Rite Aid, stole me some toothbrushes, sold them, got high. And two years later, it dawned on me what she meant. Stop. I had married this young lady, and she treated me real good. She would give me money. I ain't worked in the whole time we was married. I mean, I worked sporadically, but that was just enough to get me some drugs. And then one day, it ended. And I was staying on the corner, and her and her boyfriend used to come down there and ridicule me. And I told myself, won't nobody ever see me do bad again a day in my life. And that was in January 1999. I kicked my drug habit on the street and I went into the Salvation Army because I was homeless. And I said I wasn't coming out of there until I get me an apartment with my name on the lease. And I got an apartment and then one thing rolled over to another thing and as you can see the rest is history. So is it the incident or is it the individual? I like to think the incident might jumpstart it, but it's the individual that's going to finish the story. Some people don't want to stop, plain and simple, and they, they don't have to. This is their life. And no matter how you live your life, you know what's going to happen. You're going to die. So... I think you should be able to live your life to your satisfaction. But if you're not satisfied with your quality of living, then you might want to consider a change. And that's what happens when everybody comes through this door. For that moment, they're not satisfied. See? And we let them understand that that's, you have control. 
I don't care what you was doing out there. I don't care how dark those days were. You had somewhere in the deepest recesses of your subconscious. You knew you had to go somewhere safe. Even though there are barriers between us and them because we are the staff, we don't treat them like something's wrong with them. You know, we treat, we, we, they come in in the morning, they be, we, good morning, so-and-so, good morning, good morning, good morning. We stay open, you know, because the hardest part about being homeless is early in the morning before things start up. Some of, these, some of our people come out to shelters, 6 o'clock in the morning, nowhere to go. We try to be here no later than 7 and 7.30, even though we don't open up to 8.30, so they can come in. And then I think a lot, a lot of our members have more respect for somebody who actually walked in their shoes. Because some people, you know, I tell them, you know, first of all, Mainstream society don't believe people like us could ever recover from what we've been through. And that's including the trauma, the stigma. And here you got living proof that those things are barriers to recovery. But if they was the only barriers to recovery, why has some of us made it through and some of us haven't? So is it the incident on the individual? You know, and we made it. That was Thomas Hicks, executive director of HOPE, a social services organization for Baltimore's homeless residents, speaking with Metro Connections' Hans Anderson. In a minute, red ale? Or red tape. The agencies, for the most part, don't talk to each other, and, and oftentimes their requirements are contradictory, and that's where we end up with a lot of problems. What it takes to open a brew house in D.C. It's coming up as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we're calling this week's show Close to Home. The next home we'll visit is technically more of a house, actually, a brew house. We have five packaging breweries in the city of Washington. D.C. Brow led the way in 2011. It was the first the district had seen since 1956. That was the year the Christian Heyrich Brewing Company closed its doors. But local brewers say the city's beer renaissance has thrown the D.C. government for a loop, leading to bureaucratic confusion that can be harder to see through than a freshly poured Guinness. So if you look here on the wall, you can see the several permits that we do have here at the brewery. We're on Bladensburg Road inside the tasting room of D.C. Brow, where CEO and co-founder Brandon Skull is showing off a wall festooned with different colored papers. We've got our basic business license. Uh, We've got our industry-specific manufacturing permits that are issued from the city. Uh, We've also got our Certificate of Occupancy. The Certificate of Occupancy and Basic Business License are from the Department of Consumer and Regulatory Affairs, or DCRA. ABRA, or the Alcoholic Beverage Regulation Administration, handles the industry-specific permits. And then there's a third agency all breweries must contend with, the D.C. Department of Health. As far as all the agencies we dealt with, we ran into the most roadblocks with the Department of Health. And it took a while for us to impress upon them our exact procedures and why we are not a food business in the sense of a a normal deli, restaurant, somebody who's providing that sort of consumable. 
But here's the thing. Brewery is not among DCRA's 165 business licenses. So since beer is technically a food product, breweries are licensed as delicatessens or restaurants. And that amuses DC Brow's president and head brewer, Jeff Hancock. To have the restaurant moniker, even though we're a beer production facility, people that have come to the brewery obviously know we're, we're not cooking up burgers or, you know, serving up salads. Yet the Department of Health inspects them as such, which is why, as Brandon and Jeff explain, DOH had initially ordered DC Brow to install a mop sink Mops, though they might be good for a business like a a restaurant or a deli, they harbor a lot of things that, though you can't see, even if the mop looks clean, can cause uh, environmental infections in your product, which is one of the reasons that everything in the back in the production facility is usually sprayed clean, sometimes foamed. I I would dare to say I I would eat off our floors, certain certain parts. (laughs) And speaking of floors... All right, so tell us what what we're looking at here and where we are. They proved to be a big issue at D.C.'s newest brewery, which opened in November. Okay, we're at Hellbender Brewing Company up in northeast D.C., and we are looking at our brew house. As Hellbender co-owner Ben Evans walks me through the 8,000-square-foot brew house, he points to the concrete floor, which is coated with a clear epoxy. The health department required us to seal every square inch of the brewery space. The department's rationale, Ben says, was the epoxy would protect the beer from contamination. He tried telling DOH that beer brewing involves a little process known as pasteurization. We reach a uh, full boil in the brewing process, and then the beer is basically cooled through a series of pipes and through the entire rest of the process until it reaches your pint glass. It never sees the light of day again. But DOH made him and co-owner Patrick Mullane seal the floor anyway. It cost them $35,000. I don't even want to think about the price again, but uh, it was a lot of extra work, and hasn't aided us any in any way whatsoever. Hellbender had to make other modifications too, like, yes, installing a mop sink. As a result, says Patrick, they had to delay their opening about 10 months. And in the meantime, you're writing five or $10,000 rent checks every month, and you've got absolutely nothing to show for it. But Hellbender's biggest snag came shortly before this story was set to air, when DCRA stopped by for a surprise inspection of the brewery's steam boiler. Ben and Patrick had already had their own engineers inspect the boiler, and DCRA had actually signed off on everything. But turns out DCRA was supposed to do its own inspection. Ben says the agency never made it clear that that was supposed to happen. So DCRA is now saying Hellbender's boiler system is, and I quote, not being operated pursuant to code because its steam pressure is higher than 15 pounds per square inch, or PSI. Ben says higher pressure systems are typical in breweries nationwide. Some run as high as 45 PSI. But DCRA is saying Hellbender must now hook up emergency disconnect switches at all entrances to the brew house so they can immediately shut down the boiler if need be. Ben says that modification could run them upwards of $15,000. Further, DCRA says if Hellbender keeps using its current boiler, a certified steam boiler engineer must be on site whenever it's running. If the guys switch to a lower pressure system, they'll need regular inspections several times a week. And actually, another beer-making establishment has been doing just that. Thorcheston opened Right Proper Brew Pub in Shaw in 2013. We bought a unbelievably expensive, gorgeous boiler for our brewery, top of the line in terms of technology. We had to retrofit it. We had to make it dumber, essentially, so that it would meet the DC code. 
And now it's less efficient, he says. Plus, having a Boilerman visit every day is costing right proper $12,000 a year. You know, we need those $12,000 to do so many other things. The fact that we have to spend them because the regulations in D.C. say we have to is, is completely absurd. And even our boiler, he's such a nice guy, and he comes in and he's like, oh, man, I'm sorry. But on the bright side, because Right Proper is technically a licensed restaurant with a brewing addendum, Thor did get to avoid many of those health department hurdles his colleagues faced. They were much more focused on you know, what was going on in the kitchen and not in the brewery. So I almost felt like the kitchen was a distraction from the brewery. <laughs> Dr. Rick Meta is with the Health Regulation and Licensing Administration at DOH. He says all his department is doing is deferring to DCRA. If they categorize it as a restaurant, then our understanding is that the place could potentially be operating such as a, as a restaurant. And so if the regulations require us to follow certain components of it as it's being categorized, then those are the items that we would look for. So for DOH, everything hinges on the business license. But if you ask DCRA? The licensing aspect uh, is really less important, uh, more so the health Uh, component is the most important aspect of it. And right now, Business and Professional Licensing Administrator Eric Rogers admits the relationship between the two can lead to confusion. So we've we've been in conversations with the Alcohol Beverage Regulation Administration, ABRA, looking at ways that, you know, if we give a certain license type, where we would tie in the health inspection. Do we require it as a precondition of our license or will they require it as a condition of the liquor license. So we're still working through some of that. But it should make for an easier and more seamless process for uh, the brewers. Right Proper's Thor Cheston says it's about time the city made things easier and more seamless for local breweries. It's an industry that can't be ignored. It's growing very, very fast. And it's going to be a huge source of tax revenue for them. And so they're going to have to start to adapt and make the city much more comfortable environment for this type of industry. Hellbender's Patrick Mullane says something that should help is the recently formed D.C. Brewers Guild, which will allow brewers to approach the city as a united front. When you're just one brewery trying to forge your way, you know, you're still kind of on your own in the eyes of those agencies. So, so when there's a lot of us joined together under the same banner, that's going to be a big help. In the meantime, though, Patrick hopes even more folks in Washington will consider starting their own breweries here. Well, I just hope everything we said doesn't scare other potential brewers away. It, it's it's great being a brewer here in the city. It's a, it's a wonderful community and you know and all the headaches and heartache are are worth it in the end. We'll end today's show with something that's drawn debate, both close to home and nationwide. Fracking. Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley's Safe Drilling Advisory Commission has announced that fracking should be allowed in the state, provided companies adhere to rather strict regulations. The response has been pretty strong. Environmental groups are urging an outright ban on fracking, while industry types say the proposed rules are so strict they're impractical. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson recently sat down with Governor O'Malley's Environment Secretary, Robert Summers, to discuss how strict the proposed regs really are and why Summers thinks they're right for Maryland. Why do you think this has uh, engendered so much passion? You have an issue, at least in this state, that 
at first really only applies to a small portion of the land in Maryland. And yet you've got people all over the state taking strong positions on that. Um, has that been hard to kind of get your head around, or, or is it pretty easy to understand why this is such a, a sensitive issue? I certainly understand why people all over are concerned. M- Marylanders love Western Maryland. Uh, it's a tremendous uh, recreational and natural asset, Deep Creek Lake, uh, the mountains, the streams. And so uh, we all have a connection to what's going on. Uh, in Western Maryland. And so it's certainly understandable. And uh, it's also a a topic that touches on uh, pretty much every environmental issue. It's got water issues. It's got air issues. It has land and land use issues associated with it. It's got waste disposal issues. So it really... um, touches on everything that we do and are concerned about environmentally. Uh, So, you know, to get down to brass tacks, hydraulic fracturing or fracking, as it's known, uh, you know, across the country now, involves getting down into shale rock that's underneath the ground and kind of cracking it open using a mix of, you know, liquid and grit to get to this energy resource. When we talk about this proposal, what do you think the average Marylander should know about this? Obviously, you know, some of it, I'm sure, gets very technical. What's the takeaway? Well, first of all, they are very comprehensive. As I said a moment ago, this touches on virtually every area of the environment. People should understand that these wells go in in clusters on what are referred to as well pads, which are roughly five acres in size, then the pad itself has to be totally isolated from the environment. It's got to have impermeable surface to catch any spills, berms around it that are uh, large enough to contain a large rainstorm. And so that if there are spills, which inevitably you're going to have in a in a heavily uh, developed area like a well pad, uh, the pollutants are all contained on site and can be properly uh, disposed of. There are requirements on how the well itself is constructed. Everybody's heard about well blowouts, and, and they do happen. We have very strict requirements on how uh, the wells have to be cased to protect the drinking water aquifers, and then the waste water and the waste materials all have to be uh, properly handled. There are opportunities for methane and other pollutants to be released from the site. So we have very strict air pollution controls. It's been said that these would be the most stringent hydraulic fracturing rules in the country. Is that fair to say? And how does this compare to like what's happening in Pennsylvania and and West Virginia? Yes, I believe these are, if not the most stringent, among the most stringent regulations. And I would say, uh, rather than stringent, protective. Uh, They need to be protective of the environment, as we said earlier on in our discussion. And what we've seen, we've been working on this for quite some time, since before the executive order was issued, actually. And uh, we've been watching how the practices have evolved and become 
uh, stronger and more protective in other states, including Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And we're continuing to watch that. And I think other folks are looking at us and saying, hey, these are some good ideas. These are some problems that we have had and, and we need to address. So this is not a once and done kind of thing here. This is a technology that is rapidly improving and, and, and practices are being developed all the time. You'll hear the word stringent used in not so flattering terms too from some pro-business groups that say that it, it's pointless to, to put out these regulations because the companies are not even going to come here because these regulations are too strict. Well, I would say first of all that uh, most of the things that we have in here are, are practices that actually people have experience with and they're using. Sure, we have among the most protective, if not the most protective. But I think everybody's kind of coming up to our level. Certainly, uh, Pennsylvania has put a lot of additional controls in Colorado. Other places where drilling and fracking has been going on are, are ramping up uh, their, their protections as well. And I think we have a very strong need and demand for energy and uh, you know, eventually uh, it, it will be developed, but if it happens in Maryland, it will be done in the most protective way we can make it. That was Maryland Secretary of the Environment Robert Summers talking with Metro Connections Jonathan Wilson. Want a closer look at the Fracking Commission's final report? You can find it on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Hans Anderson, Jonathan Wilson, Lauren Ober, and Ellie Schweitzer, along with reporter Avi Wolfman Arendt. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. And we say a fond farewell this week to our superstar intern, Julie Alderman. Julie, we thank you and wish you tons of success as you embark on your career. Also, thanks to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. You can find information about all the music we play on our website. That's metroconnection.org. You can also listen to past episodes of the show and subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll toast the holiday season with our annual show about traditions. We'll slurp up a tasty tradition that's been filling the bellies of U.S. senators for years. We'll meet women reclaiming a Jewish tradition at a local synagogue. And we'll find out how you keep those soldiers, snowflakes, and sugar plum fairies dancing after years of performing the Nutcracker. I will keep it fresh, giving you a good spirit every year, trying to give a little bit of an extra sparkle. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.